you know, you, you've got to sort of uh, play the game that's there to be played. You know, if you want to go and play another game, fine, you can go and do that, but that leads down a different path, you know. So uh, I, I played the game that was there to be played. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Live Through That. I'm your host, Mike Hipple, and on this podcast, we'll dig a little deeper into a pivotal moment into the lives of some of my favorite artists from the 80s and 90s. Today, we're talking with Jack Hughes from Wang Chung. Just a heads up that this is not a continuation of Nick Feldman's episode from earlier in this week. Both episodes are standalone episodes with different stories. And today, Jack tells us his story about his journey from trying his hand at composing music to new wave hitmaker. Definitely the, the 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 first pivotal moment I recall is hearing the Beatles "Please Please Me" on the radio, which I've talked about many times before. Uh, but I was probably uh, like seven years old, maybe eight years old, 1962. So I was, yeah, I can't even do the maths anymore. <laughs> I think I was eight, and um, yeah, in the kitchen with my mother. And uh, I, it's one of these things, isn't it? When you recall something so many times, you start to recall the recollection rather than the actual thing that happened. But as I recall it, you know, I was just sitting, amusing myself, doing something while she was doing the washing up. And the Beatles, Please Please Me, came on the radio. And I immediately heard it as something different, uh, something never before heard, you know. And uh, and I got that my mum was rather irritated by it because it has this chorus section that goes come on come on come on come on repeats you know and I remember her going oh come on then and sort of splashing something in the washing up bowl and I kind of got really got at that moment that this was uh a irritating for her which I sort of liked (laughs) uh and b I totally sort of identified with it in some curious way I can't explain why you know I got that it was my music and, and not her music. It was a moment of separation, I suppose, you know, but it felt good <laughs> as opposed to frightening. And um, yeah, so that was definitely a pivotal moment. But there have been various times in my life where I've heard, uh, I, I guess, music that was, what's that I was going to say, foreign to me, by which I mean, I guess, music I'd never heard before. Uh, and suddenly it dropped in, into place. Uh, so an example of that would be when I was in my teens and I, I started uh, studying music at school. I mean, in, in the UK, we had what were called uh, O-level music and A-level music. They were, they were what you studied at school before you went to university, you know. And um, I, the teacher had um, left. Um, he was sick, I think. And I was the only kid that did music in the school that I was at. That would never happen these days, of course. So it wouldn't be affordable. But in those days, costs didn't seem to equate to uh, actually learning things in the same way. And um, and he left um, some work for me to do in the class. And the work was to listen to a piece by Franz Schubert, his so-called unfinished symphony. And I remember playing that. And that, uh, again, was this transformation with classical music where instead of just finding it interesting, <laughs> which I sort of, you know, I found it interesting, kind of liked it but I certainly didn't love it and it wasn't my music of choice by any means but that piece had an incredible impact on me and I found myself you know I went and bought a record of it and uh, and I listened to it a lot 
part of the connection for me was that it uh, sounded a bit like the Beatles. Um, technically, I suppose you'd say it was a, in a sort of slightly modal kind of place in the way that a lot of classical music isn't. But that, again, was a pivotal moment that sent me off on this quest to sort of try and get to grips with classical music, which I'm still uh, um, I'm still trying to get to grips with it. Yeah. Seeing the Beatles was indeed a catalyst for Jack in wanting to pursue being a musician. Possibly that came later when I saw them on television. I think I saw them on the Royal Variety performance, which would have been in 63, I think. And um, yeah, the guitars, the, the look, the whole thing that they had. Uh, the screaming <laughs> and stuff. You know. uh, I thought that's what I want to do, you know, a bit like John Lennon seeing Elvis, you know, that's a good job. That's what I'd like to do, you know. And um, so, yes, and that, uh, so I, I said to my dad, you know, I want to learn guitar and, and thank God he, because he was a musician himself, he was a saxophone player. Uh, and he said, yeah, okay, I'll get you a guitar on the condition that you have proper lessons. You know, you need to go, I'll fix up these lessons you know, once a week. It was actually twice a week that I had them to begin with. And they were nominally sort of classical guitar lessons, I suppose. But the teacher I had, you know, she wasn't, uh, how can I say, she wasn't training me to be a, a classical guitarist, you know, with perfect technique. She was essentially teaching me how to play songs on the guitar, you know, music on the guitar, you know. So for me, it was a means to an end. I went to the lessons so that she could look at the sheet music of Beatles songs and, and show me how to play the chords, you know. But uh, I guess in return, I played, you know, um, you know, obviously it takes a while to get to the stage where you're playing Bach and stuff like that. But I did enjoy playing Bach pieces on the guitar. And that, again, that, that experience of that sort of different harmonic world uh, fed into my sort of thinking about pop music and I suppose I was very lucky to be growing up at a time when prog rock was the sort of the stuff that was, was in the mainstream you know and bands like Yes and Genesis and King Crimson those sorts of bands that were using kind of classical harmonies and textures uh, in their work you know uh, that that sort of all made sense to me and felt quite hip at the time in a way that it probably wouldn't now you know? jack went on to take his passion for music and pursued a classical music degree at the royal college of music yeah so i i did my uh, the year at the royal college of music and i guess at the end of that time uh, i was pretty heartily sick of classical music and uh, the idea of being a composer and that kind of as I sort of emerged from this world of you know Boulez and Stockhouse and your music which I still love um, and was very grateful to have been you know exposed to, to to study and so on you know when I came out the punk revolution in London in 1977 was in full swing you know and I remember hearing these bands um, you know the Clash and the, the Sex Pistols and uh, you know, being again, I, uh, the Ramones as well, U, uh, U.S. band, um, uh, being being sort of inspired by them. Another pivotal moment, moment really, you know, and getting that, um, you know, too much technique <laughs> can lead you into this sort of blind alley of complexity and, um, you know, losing you know losing touch with an audience. And I really got that they were creating their audience, and um, and I think that's such an important thing for musicians and artists in general to do. You know, you you have to sort of if not find your audience, if you can't find it, then you have to create it. And the punk bands were doing that, you know. Uh, so that was very, very inspiring. And uh, when I first met Nick, he was essentially uh, doing a sort of punk thing. I mean, you know, music, you know, just like now, if you were looking for a deal, you'd, you'd have to be following one of a number of possible avenues um, in order to try and get signed by a label. If, 
I mean, obviously the models these days are completely different to how they used to be. But back then, you know, punk was the flavor of the month and um, that that's what record companies expected you to be doing if they were going to give you a deal, you know. So Nick had written these songs, uh, which had sort of a superficial punk gloss on them, you know. Uh, but what I loved about his writing was that he was using quite jazz chords, you know, quite Steely Dan meets Frank Zappa type chord formations, you know. And um, and I kind of understood that very intuitively in a way that the other people who auditioned for his band didn't, or so he told me. So uh, so I got the gig with Nick, you know. But um, but yeah, the punk thing was very important. And, I, and I'm still a, a big believer in that, you know, defining what you want to do as an artist and then pursuing it relentlessly. Jack didn't attend the college to be a rock musician. He was on a path to be a composer. Yeah, I think I'd got into the sort of that sort of classical, um, what is it, delusion, <laughs> probably. You know, the <clears throat> the composer who just composes, you know, he doesn't get, get his hands dirty playing gigs and, you know, and stuff. You know, it's all very cerebral. I mean, from the heart, obviously, but, um, you know, Beethoven, that, that, that sort of image of the suffering artist in the you know, in poverty and squalor. I mean, I guess I never really considered poverty and squalor <laughs> seriously. And one of the things that made me turn to rock music was probably the fear of poverty and squalor. So, um, but yeah, that, that idea of being uh, just a, a c- composing music uh, and people would be banging on my door to, to hear my next thoughts. Of course, that's not how it is in the real world. Nobody gives a damn about what you're doing, really. And um, so, yeah, um, I think my great realisation about, you know, being a a composer was that just like in rock music, you need networks. You need networks of people, of orchestral musicians, of great soloists, of conductors, of people who can give you gigs, basically, you know. And I I really got that that was um, a whole sort of middle class preserve in in the UK, Uh, slightly different in the US, but, you know, classical music, you know, the word class is is the giveaway. It's in it's in the word, you know, and um, uh, sadly uh, that that is a barrier, you know. And as a at the time, you know, sort of working class kid, I I didn't really understand the, the the language of all of that stuff and how that worked, you know. But I intuitively got that it wasn't a world that I was going to be able to break into, and uh, and it sort of sent me back to bands and rock music and a language that I that I understood, you know. Wang Chung happened, and you can hear partner Nick Feldman's account of their beginnings in the previous episode. One of my favorite songs of theirs is To Live and Die in L.A., which came out between their first hit, Dance Hall Days, and the song that made them a part of the culture in 1986 with their massive song, Everybody Have Fun Tonight. In an alternate universe, though, there's a chance the band could have gone in a much different direction, and the phrase, Everybody Wang Chung Tonight, would have never become part of the 80s lexicon. Yeah, there was definitely a fork in the road <laughs> after To Live and Die in L.A., yeah. So To Live and Die in L.A. was a a movie soundtrack, as as you all know. Um, but in those days, movie soundtracks were very different from um, pop singles, you know, top 40 singles, uh, almost dealt with by different radio pluggers, different people with different brains <laughs> from pop people, you know. So To Live and Die in L.A. was considered this sort of aberration in a sense and and really just a bit of time off before we got back to the job of writing a proper top 40 single ideally a number one single you know and so um, the the pressure was on and that was definitely a a sort of fork in the road for me because uh, I loved working on To Live and Die in LA and that sort of resurrecting my my sort of prog influences really which is 
I mean, that's always in, in the background, you know, but To Live and Die in LA was really about writing, um, you know, the instrumental music, the long form tracks on the album. Uh, e- even the song To Live and Die in LA is a sort of contradiction of pop song rules in the sense that the chorus i remember playing it to the anr guy at geffen we, we had an anr guy uh, john kolodner legendary anr guy and i played him to live and die in la <clears throat> the song uh and uh, he listened through to it and at the end of it he looked at me and he said it goes down in the chorus uh, which to him was like suicide commercial suicide <laughs> um and i guess it sort of does go down in the chorus a bit but for me that was necessary for the expression of the song you know it sort of sets up this kind of quite serious rock thing you know you know you know how it goes uh and then the chorus is much more melodic and stuff you know uh but anyway so i i kind of thought yeah that that, that sort of way of writing quite detailed arty stuff was what I wanted to pursue but that wasn't the game in town really the game in town was having a number one single you know so I I did sort of uh, struggle with that a little bit Um, but in the end as my manager David said to me you know you've got to ride the horse the way it's going and I do get that when you've got some success under your belt and there's the project's not just about you it's about the other people involved and not least the people who put money into it and want to see a return then you know you you've got to sort of uh, play the game that's there to be played you know if you want to go and play another game fine you can go and do that but that's leads down a different path you know so uh, I, I played the game that was there to be played and and that resulted in the mosaic album and everybody have fun tonight and let's go and all of that stuff you know which did bring wang chung much broader success you know um i'm not sure that in the end that it totally did the band um the the, the best service <laughs> that it should have you know um but that but that's what happened you know i certainly don't regret it you know and i think interestingly over the years the band's become known you know as being kind of uh, in a strange sort of way experimental you know ranging from to live and die in la to live and die in la to everybody have fun tonight and then also to space junk which is a track that we did uh, as part of a greatest hits album in 97 you know and again um i, I guess that was a more how should we say it's, it's a song that came out of um you know, not thinking with commercial imperatives in mind particularly but just sort of writing the next song that was coming up you know did that create tension within the band yes i think it did yeah yeah and um, so <clears throat> there, there was always this sort of push and pull um, between me and Nick principally, you know, and sometimes that works really well and, and we get the sort of best out of each other. And sometimes um, it doesn't work so well, you know. So the follow up album to Mosaic was The Warmer Side of Cool, you know, and I think the pendulum swung much more firmly back into the sort of prog camp there, you know, um, but, but not in a terribly... Uh, for, for me, that album sounds sort of strange. You know, it's a difficult album to make. And, and although it's got some tracks that have a good go uh, at trying to do something strong, you know, it's, uh, I think it's, um, it's not sure which direction it, it's, it's really going in, you know. So, uh, and, I, and I think that ultimately, you know, the, the band uh, splitting up was inevitable, you know. I mean, it wasn't just those artistic differences because I think the 80s, uh, was also coming to an end, both chronologically and in terms of style. You know, um, Nirvana, Guns N' Roses were the new bands at Geffen, you know, and Wang Chung was struggling to figure out where they were going, you know, so inev- inevitably we were kind of um, diminished 
uh, but by all of that as well. But that that's uh, that's kind of you know a sort of Darwinian natural selection thing. You know, I don't happen to believe in natural selection, but that's another story. <laughs> Everything comes back full circle, and going back to his youthful love of prog rock, experimentation, and a newly discovered love of jazz, he formed a band called The Quartet and released an album in 2007. That was another pivotal moment. Um, I was working with Chris Hughes, uh, who produced Dance All Days, and Chris has produced all kinds of things. Uh, most recently, the, the latest Lloyd Cole album, you know, he's still very active on that front. Uh, and um, so I was working with Chris. He was producing a band called The Definition of Sound and uh, called me up one day and said, would you come and play a bit of guitar? We need some, somebody who can play <laughs> to do something. So I went down to Bath, which is a city about 200 miles from where I live in the other, on the other side of the, um, the UK, uh, thinking I'd spend a couple of days with him. And I ended up staying for about six months, I think, working on this record, you know. And... Uh, in the evenings, we used to sort of have a, a meal together. So the band, which was two guys, uh, the definition of sound, they were they were kind of like rappers, I suppose, really. But they'd done these demos where they were sampling uh, sort of white rock music, essentially. And um, really talented guys, actually. And uh, at that time, this was in the mid-90s. It was really quite uh, unique what they were doing. And Chris, obviously, uh, was, you know, understood the language of, the, of, of rock music really, really well. And um, anyway, so we would all sit down and have dinner together. And he used to play, you know, decide on an album to play for, mainly for them to listen to. I think he thought he was sort of educating them. You know, it sounds very patronising. He didn't mean it in that way at all. It was just like kind of getting a, a broad overview of the territory, you know. But what he was really doing was educating me. And I do recall clearly that he played Miles Davis's Kind of Blue one, one evening. And it hit me like a thunderbolt <laughs> because I'd sort of... Uh, you know, my dad was a jazz musician, uh, although he was into kind of quite a sort of gentle kind of jazz, you know, Paul Desmond, Stan Getz, those kind of guys he, he liked. He was not into Coltrane and uh, Eric Dolphy and that sort of stuff, you know. Um, but, um, yeah, and, and I'd work, you know, working with Peter Wolf as well on Everybody Have Fun Tonight. You know, Peter was in Frank Zappa's band and was a massive jazz head. And, and I remember him talking to me about Miles Davis one time and I was like don't really know miles and uh, he's like you don't know miles and he we, we went out in his murk i remember and he was playing me nefertiti very loudly as we drove around the streets in la uh and i i liked it you know but once again as with the uh, classical music when i was a teenager you know i liked it but i didn't really get it you know um but when when i heard kind of blue i the, the light just went on and i got what Miles was doing, you know, the simplicity, especially as a composer, I got that what he was doing was getting out of the way so that great musicians could play to their fullest extent and fullest self-expression. Um, and that became a fascination for me of working with great musicians who could really play and creating sort of structures in which they could be their best, you know, and, and that uh, is a slightly pretentious way of saying of how the the saying how the, the quartet started, which is this band that I've had in Canterbury um, in a very loose kind of way over the last, oh, I suppose it's like fifteen years, probably something like that, maybe even longer, maybe twenty years now actually, and um, yeah, uh, and that's been a sort of exploration partly of jazz structures, but also sort of progressive rock and um, Canterbury, where I live in the UK has this uh, connection with a, a particular brand of um, progressive rock, which is very deeply related 
as a blend of rock and jazz, I suppose. Uh, the, the principal bands being like a Soft Machine. Um, they're, they're the main ones that stand out as uh, being very influenced by free jazz uh, and, and rock music and trying to create this blend. And, and I guess to begin with, completely unconsciously, I, I was doing the same thing. Are there any new projects coming up with Wang Chung or more solo projects? Yeah. Um, I know Nick has written a whole load of songs that he wants wants to do. Uh, I, in the last few years, have released uh, solo albums because... Um, uh, because because you know you know Wang Chung is a particular kind of animal I think you know and the sort of stuff I've been doing which is um, I guess a bit a little more out there and more of a hybrid um, <clears throat> I decided would work better as a just as a solo project you know and um, this year uh, in the early part of the year I, I the, the inspirations came again and uh, so I, I wrote quite a lot of material then which I've been working on. Uh, I've got a plan to put out a single actually pretty soon um, because um, uh, I'm, I'm totally fascinated with this uh, current um, interest in, in UFOs and UAPs as they're now branded and um, and I've got this song that's kind of sort of meditating on all of these uh, on that subject and uh, I, I sort of want to get it out there while it's still <laughs> in a sort of contemporary space really so uh, look out you know there may be some some crazy new music from me. No, you're the first person I told because I don't want people to think I'm crazy. But right, 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 right. Oh, Since 2017, everything appears the same. Since 2017 Everything has changed Everything has changed That was a bit of Jack's UFO song since 2017. I was definitely intrigued by this and wanted to know more. I'm, I'm very interested in these sort of taboo subjects, if you like, you know, uh, UFO being one. You know, who wrote Shakespeare's plays is another one that I, I'm fascinated by the fact that there's a whole developed school of thought that you know, has theories about other people writing the plays other than the guy in Stratford. And, uh, and, and I find it, I just find it interesting, you know, that um, with all of this sort of like mountain of evidence that people who remain in the mainstream, you know, almost you know, shut their eyes to other possibilities. And um, <clears throat> I, I kind of like that multiplicity of possibilities i wouldn't say i was a a believer in one particular thing or another but i i'm definitely fascinated by uh, people who kind of shake the tree a bit you know i mean and see what fruit comes down <laughs>
And that's it for today's episode. Thank you so much to Jack for being on the show. If you haven't listened to our other episode this week with Jack's partner in Wang Chung, Nick Feldman, please go back and have a listen to that one as well. And be on the lookout in 2024 for Wang Chung's remastered back catalog on vinyl. And a quick reminder that you can also buy my book on 80s musicians and where they are today, 80s Redux, and its sequel, Live Through That, wherever you buy your books. And if you like this show, please leave a review where you're listening. It always helps others find us. And of course, subscribe so you'll know when the latest episode comes out. You can also follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Mike Hipple Photo, all one word. Thanks for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.